So let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can come to you, look at your word. We ask that you guide us now. Help us to think your thoughts after you more faithfully. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior. We thank you that he's the living word. And that as we come to you, you reveal him to us. Do that, we ask, in a powerful way. We ask these mercies. In Jesus' name, amen. There you are at the ophthalmologist. And uh, you're looking through a lens and... He or she says to you, is it better number one or number two? Number two or number three? Number three or number four? And then you come out with a new prescription and you can now see, hopefully, 2020. It's a good analogy to think about our relationship to the Lord. The Lord wants us to see things 2020, that is, through his eyes. And that's exactly what this passage of scripture we just read is all about. It's about learning to see things God's way. So if you have your Bible and can turn to 2 Samuel 11, we are going to work our way down through that chapter. It really raises the question, who has the right to say what is good and what is evil? Who has that right? Is it the patient or is it the great physician? And so we're going to approach these verses in this way. First of all, we're going to look at David's bravado. And then David's blindness. And then finally, 2020 vision. David's bravado, David's blindness, 2020 vision. As you look at chapter 11, what becomes apparent? Well, first of all, uh, let's just make a geographical note here. Uh, verse 1, the Israelite army is besieging Rabbah, and David is in Jerusalem. Uh, how far is it from Rabbah to Jerusalem? Anybody know? Well, as the crow flies, anybody know? As the crow flies, about 40 miles. If you were trekking that journey, could a soldier travel 10 miles a day? I don't know. But if he did, and it's, as the crow flies, it would take four or five days to make the journey at 10, 10 miles a day. But that's just a side note. Did you notice the verb that keeps on popping up in chapter 11? There's one verb. And it goes to David's bravado. It's the verb to send. Notice it? Verse 1, David sends Joab, and he stays back in Jerusalem. Verse 3, he sends to find out about Bathsheba. Then verse 4, uh, Bathsheba again, he sends for her. Then he sends for Uriah. Then um, he sends to Joab. And then he sends for Bathsheba at the end. Uh, this is a way of communicating that David is really the king. He speaks and people jump. He tells people what to do and they do it. He has authority. He's a big deal. That's 
one of the ways that we see David's bravado, but it's not the only one. Look at verse 3. He sees Bathsheba and then finds out about her and he discovers that, he, uh, that she is the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Both of those men are identified later on in the Bible as being key military people in David's army. They were big, important fighters. That's who Bathsheba is related to. And let's just notice, this is Uriah the Hittite. He's not of Jewish descent. And the Jewish people in general, and kings in particular, had a responsibility to take care of foreigners, right? He sees her. And uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, you watch out for your eye. Your eye is the way that light comes into your body. Well, what happens when David sees her? He sends for her, takes her, lies with her. He's broken the seventh commandment, and he's broken the tenth commandment. David is an important king, though, and he can do what he wants to do, right? Except there's a problem. And we're told in verse 5 that Bathsheba says to David, uh-oh, I'm pregnant. Now, there must have been people in David's household and in the palace that had some awareness that Bathsheba had come to spend the night with David. And he decides he has to cover it up. And here's the problem. It's, it's just a little parenthesis there at the end of verse 4. The, the narrator makes it clear to us that Uriah cannot be the father of this child that Bathsheba is carrying. See it there? And so the idea is maybe people will know that David has been guilty of adultery. And so he has to be the fixer now. How will he fix this problem? We see something more of his bravado when we look at the way he interacts with Uriah. In verses 6 and following, we're told that he sends, again, see the word? He sends, for, he sends to Joab and he says, bring Uriah back to me. What will David do when Uriah shows up? Will he confess his sin? Is that the purpose for bringing him back? No, not at all. This is more of the cover-up. Brings Uriah back, asks him how things are going generally, and he says, why don't you just go on home? You know, you've been out on the battlefield, so a little R&R &R is good for everybody. And Uriah, for his part, is an honorable man. And so where does he spend the night? Not back at home with Bathsheba, but outside of the palace with the other servants. David's cover-up is not working well. And so he brings him back again. He says, why don't you go and 
just spend some more time at home. And Uriah, a now faithful, proselytized Hittite, says, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it even if you tell me to do it, King David. My fellow soldiers and Joab, Israelite soldiers, are out in the battle. I am not going to come home and have a nice time with my wife. David ponders that, tries another approach. I'll have dinner with Uriah and get him drunk and then send him home. And that fails too. And so now David sends him back. And he sends Uriah back with his own death sentence in his hand. He writes another, he writes a note to Joab, says, put him out on the front line of the battle. When the fighting gets intense, have the soldiers withdraw so that Uriah is killed. And so now David breaks the sixth commandment. Well, you know, we could spend more time on this, but let's move on now to David's blindness. Uh, what David does in this attempt to cover up his sin is puts Uriah to death, but also other of the valiant warriors of Israel. We're told us there. We're told us that. In uh, verse 24, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David's blindness comes to us in very uh, clear terms in verse 25. Did you notice what he says? He gets this report, okay, my plan's worked, Uriah's dead, I can breathe a sigh of relief, and then he sends this message back to Joab. Joab, don't let this matter displease you. David's the boss, remember? He's the big man on campus. He can tell people how to interpret life. Don't let it bother you, Joab. You know how war is. People die, and we can't quite predict how they die. Arrows fly around sort of indiscriminately. Don't you let it bother you. What he really says, the Hebrew word here is, do not let this be evil. In your sight. As you're looking at this and evaluating it, don't let it be evil in your sight. How could the king of Israel ever say such a thing like that? He is blinded by his lust, his adultery, his murder. Don't let it be evil in your sight. I'll give you the right perspective. I'm king. And so, verses 26 and 27, Bathsheba finds out about it. David sends for her, brings her into his house, and adds to his harem. And we've seen that theme before, right? 
David adds these wives and then he adds these wives and now this wife and we shouldn't in some sense be surprised at his wickedness. And it's all neatly wrapped up. Now we can move on to the next chapter. Now let's just ask ourselves the question, what are we supposed to do with this account? How do we make sense out of it in some way that's applicable to us? Uh, we know from Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that God predestined you so that you would be conformed to the image of his Son. And in James chapter 1, we're told, don't be just hearers of the word, but be doers of the word. What does the Lord want you to do with these verses? Well, we might suggest some facetious and some actual one-for-one -one correspondences between what we find here, like this. Uh, David is wandering around on his roof after he's taken a nap, May, and that gets him into trouble. Maybe the word is, after you've taken a nap, don't you wander around on your roof. I know. Or, or how about this? David sees Bathsheba, and maybe the word would be, well, David lets his eyes wander, don't you let your eyes wander on your cell phone or on your computer or as you're out and about in real life. Or um, how about this? Um, you ought not to let your lust get the best of you the way David did. That might be a one-for-one -one correspondence. But my suggestion is that the writer is trying to do something with, with these verses that goes deeper than any of these applications, as valid as they might be. What might those deeper things be? Let's put this section into the larger frame of First and Second Samuel. What's going on in the book as a whole? The Lord really is calling people to the basic truths of the covenant. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, dire consequences are coming your way. That's the sort of the macro structure of 1 and 2 Samuel. And this section fits within that. Basically, the whole Bible and First and Second Samuel speak to us about being faithful to what God has called us to do. And you can see something of that here just in terms of your own situation and David's. David is not being a faithful king. And he stands as a negative example then. Wherever the Lord has placed you, be faithful to the calling he's given you. David is on the opposite end of obedience. There's only one faithful king, and you know who he is. He's the Lord Jesus. Uh, he, is, he does all the Father's will. He lays down his life for his friends. He doesn't connive and find ways to take the lives of those that are serving him. You need that kind of king and it's related to the next section, 2020 vision. David says in verse 25, don't let this be evil in your sight, Joab. And what does God say 
Look at the end of verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It's very similar to the language of verse 25, isn't it? David says, don't let this displease you. Now verse 27, this does displease God. But it's more than that. In the same way that the narrator puts uh, in the message to Joab, don't let this murder of Uriah be evil in your sight. So now he places at the end of verse 27, God sees what David has done as evil in his sight. God has 20-20 vision. God will tell who gets to decide what's evil and what's good. Does God have the right to tell you what's evil and what's good in your life today? Think about it. What's going on in your life? Does God have the right to tell you what's evil and what's good? Absolutely he does. You need, as I said before, a faithful king who will interpret life appropriately for you. And so, what's the point of these verses? Yeah, there is reference to lust and adultery and murder and cover-up, but the deeper issue from this passage is who is going to tell you how to live life? What's the standard you're going to use by which to evaluate whether you do this or do that? The writer is making the point that God's word, God is the final determiner, and he's given us his word right here so that you know how to live before him. Well, one then, practical application. One small step you can take to keep in step with where God is going. Memorize Ephesians 4, verses 31 through chapter 5, verse 2. Now, we're going on beyond that, actually. We're going to keep working our way back. Memorize those verses. Why? Let's just step back from the text a little bit and think about what life has been like for us these last however many months it's been. 10, 15, I don't know how many months. What has life been like for us? It has been filled with all kinds of tension. Tension about political issues and tension about health care issues. And somehow they seem to spill over into most any other topic you want to raise. And the effect on the church is that it tears people apart. We have decided to memorize these verses in Ephesians to address this problem of the tension, the, 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 the stress in which we find ourselves as a congregation. Who doesn't need to be reminded let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor be put away from you. Who doesn't, need to, who doesn't need to be reminded in times like these, be kind one to another, tender-hearted and forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. It's the word of God 
applied to the lives of the people of God that shapes them into being a more and more fit place in which the Holy Spirit dwells. And God's intention in this is that we grow to be more unified, not more fragmented. So here's one application. Make sure you're memorizing Ephesians chapter 4 and chapter 5. Uh, let me say it another way. Subordinate your personal preferences to the unity of the body of Christ. Ajalon and I were on a Zoom meeting today trying to be of help in another congregation and learned of a, an elder's wife in that congregation who puts out inflammatory posts on Facebook about the political health care system in which we find ourselves. Imagine that. Your posts might do a similar kind of thing. So please be discreet in what you post. And so your words can also be inflammatory. Be careful what you say. We want to subordinate, we want to subordinate, we want to put down under our own personal preferences for something much more important, and that is for the unity of the body of Christ for which the Lord Jesus suffered and died and rose again. Can you think of anybody in recent political history who responded in an appropriate way? I was thinking about our friend Chuck Colson. Remember him? He was uh, indicted and spent time in prison for his part in the Watergate break-in. The Lord used that in his life to save him. And in saving him, Chuck Colson subordinated his own personal opinions to something much greater. And in the process, started prison ministry. It's been a powerful influence. Who knows how the Lord wants to use you if you honor his word, subordinate your personal preferences to the glory of Christ and the unity of his church. Memorize Ephesians chapter 4. So far, verses 31 through chapter 5, verse 2. Next week, gets what we do. Get a new verse, chapter, five, uh, chapter 4, verse 30, so you can get a jump on it. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for that we have a great Savior uh, who's ascended into the heavenlies, Jesus, the Son of God. Thank you that he's our righteous king who enables us to do all your holy will. We love you for what you've done for us. We ask you to bless us and make us more Christ-like as a congregation. May we grow in our unity and our love for each other. We ask these mercies in Jesus' name, amen.